Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. July 14th, Alice. Sometime at the beginning of autumn, when the weather was still good and the prospect of the pandemic making its way to Australia seemed less like a vague possibility and more like a nightmarish certainty, when people in my own suburb began hoarding toilet paper and pasta and giant bags of flour the latter of which seemed odd for a neighbourhood boasting approximately three artisanal bakeries to every single resident, and thus signifying a general lack of interest in one's own baking skills. When people began having fretful conversations on the street and in cafes about how nervous they were and how it's all terrible, just terrible, when rumours were being whispered of the Melbourne Pavilion and the showgrounds being turned into triage centres, and makeshift morgues, and when, as a result of all this, a nationwide lockdown seemed imminent. I bought a new bicycle. My old bicycle had been stolen a month or so earlier, from outside the North Fitzroy Library. I'd left the bicycle there after getting drunk with Alice in the nearby gardens. We'd been writing in the library, each of us slogging our way toward our daily word counts occasionally looking up at each other with pained faces to express how much we loathed the task of writing and how we were absolute fools for choosing a career in which we spent 90% of our working life hating ourselves. Of course, this self-flagellation is all part of the process. To be a writer, one has to spend at least a portion of the time locked in an invisible cage of despair. Anyone who says otherwise is lying. Alice and I are not liars, at least not about the fundamental torment of our chosen professions. What we both are is good drinkers, and so we finished the day by heading to the gardens with a bottle of wine each and proceeded to get excessively drunk. It was one of the last nights of summer, a Friday, and the gardens were full of people pleasure-seeking. Outside the toilet block, a long line of them snaked their way towards the skate bowl, some of them clustered in groups of two or three and clutching onto beer bottles or plastic wine cups. The air was still and warm, but there was a whisper of something in it 
that reminded us it wouldn't be like this for long. But soon the nights would begin to come earlier. The leaves would fall with the temperature. And before too long, it would once again be winter. We couldn't know then that the winter itself would bring with it so much ominous foreboding, nor that our time of drinking wine together and breaking down the problems of the world was set to dramatically change. Perhaps it's better that we didn't know that we simply got to enjoy a final summer's evening together, delighting in each other's company. But I was in a bad mood that night, and as it was, I picked a fight with Alice about something silly, men, I think, and her fondness for the ones who I saw as being pretentiously wounded, or perhaps it was the way in which she flirted with them by appealing to their intelligence instead of asserting her own, which is substantial. Or maybe the simple truth of it is that I am envious of the ease in which she slips into the role of the ingenue, because even though I don't know that I could bring myself to perform to men like that, it would also be nice to have the choice. And we ended the night feeling bitter and cross with one another. I was far too drunk to ride home, so I left the bicycle outside the library and allowed myself to be distracted from the task of collecting it for weeks, until someone else took care of the problem for me, which of course I knew they would. Not long after that, Alice and I began preparing for the end of the world. She was better equipped for this task than I, having spent at least the last eight years pondering the narrative possibilities presented by total societal collapse. She is what is known these days as a cli-fi novelist, a writer of speculative fiction about a world arrested by climate change and in which humanity is confronted with the consequences of its own languid inaction. You know, light-hearted reading before bed type stuff. Climate change. It seems like such a distant problem now. For a time, we joked this might be the world's attempt at repairing itself, bringing to a standstill the biggest pandemic and virus it's ever known. Us. Humanity. The whole stinking kit and caboodle of it all. But joking though we may have been, still we reached for the evidence of it with an earnest optimism. People love to find meaning in the obstacles we encounter. A global pandemic couldn't possibly exist as a matter of random fact. There must be some kind of meaning attached to it. A reason for all this fear, anxiety and, let's be honest, inconvenient interruption. Did you hear? We began announcing to each other excitedly in between the fretful inquiries into one's mental health that had replaced normal greetings. There are dolphins in the canals in Venice! Alice, who had been tracking the climate's grievances for so long that she considered it a matter of when, and not if, her fictional predictions would come true, found herself torn between hope for a future in which we weren't being sucked beneath floodwaters or ravaged by fires and despair at the fact that either way 
we were still saying goodbye to the world as we'd known it. The panic buying had just started at this point, and although we weren't certain where it might lead, we knew how scenarios like this ended. We'd seen years and years only recently for crying out loud. We laid out our what-if plans in hushed, guarded voices over dinner while the children played together, and we laid out our backup plans in the rapid-fire texts we sent to one another late at night. We could go to Alice's mother's house in the country, pitch tents in the garden, and pretend to the children we were having an adventure. And, after all, was this not exactly what we were having? An adventure, unexpected and unprecedented, but filled with its own rich narrative possibilities? For amidst the unsettling tension in the air, the anxiety about what was coming, and the prospect that everything we had ever loved, or pined for, or even just taken for granted, was about to end, there was something else too, a thrumming below the surface, a whisper a deep vibration that signalled something exciting could be about to begin, even as everything else seemed set to end. We were writers, Alice and I, and we had lived in the words on the page. We had suffered for them, bled for them, cried over them, been consumed by the tediousness of them. But still, more than anything, we had thrilled in the possibility of life those words had created. We could survive what was coming by romanticising it, by becoming characters in our own real-life novel, each of us speaking our lines as if they had been written for us by a distant hand to whom we could also surrender the direction of the plot. And so I bought a bicycle, sleek and black, with smooth gears and an electric boost that whirred quietly as the pedals turned with space at the back for a child's seat. We could travel easily on it, he and I, over back roads or under cover of night if need be. It seemed a sensible thing to have when you don't know what's going to happen next. Well, this is what I told Alice, and she agreed. The Lockdown Diaries are written, presented and produced by me, Clementine Ford. Stay safe.